Good morning. We're going to take just a one-week pause from 1 Peter, and I would ask you to please turn to 1 John, which is a book that we studied some years ago. And as you're turning to 1 John chapter 3, let me tell you two little stories, one real and one made up. When my son, who will remain nameless for the protection of his identity, <laughs> was but a wee lad, was just a small boy. Um, there was a time when, <clears throat> out of uh, Duplo blocks, the large, they're not Legos, but they're like Legos, the large ones. When I was little, we called them Tycos. Anyway, Owen had Duplo blocks, and as boys do, he made a rather large uh, rifle out of these Duplo blocks. Uh, and he wanted to take that with him into the car. Dad, can I take this with us? I don't remember where we were going. And I said, no, you know, those Duplo blocks aren't very steady or stable. It's going to break. And Owen was very insistent. No, 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 I built it. It, it will, it's fine. And as he was saying that, in the act of pronouncing and insisting upon the, the sturdiness and stability and integrity of his creation, the handle broke and he dropped it, and the whole thing disintegrated into a thousand pieces. He was oh so confident about the integrity of his creation, and yet his, his insistence was not well-founded. The thing he was trusting in, or the thing that he was confident about, he had no reason to be confident about. It wasn't true that it, it could stay together, because it's not of the nature of, of Duplo blocks to stick like that. They just don't work that way. Now, the made-up thing. We, we all know this type of person. Imagine uh, a girl in school who is studying as hard as she possibly can, and she's anxious and she's stressed about an exam or a study or a quiz or a, or a paper of some sort. And she's working and working, and she is convinced, she is confident that she's going to fail. I just know I'm going to fail. I, I just know I'm not going to do well. This is going to be horrible. She's incredibly confident in doubting herself. She is sure that this exam is going to go horribly. And yet what happens? She gets the paper back. She gets the exam back. And all of her hard work gave her a decent grade or a great grade. She did fine or she did well. In each of these cases, you have someone who's confident about something and then it proves to be completely wrong one way or the other. I'm confident this will succeed and it breaks. I'm confident this will fail and it succeeds. We all have confidence about various things or a lack of confidence about various things. And the Apostle John wrote 1 John to a church that was lacking confidence to Christians who were struggling with many questions and doubts about what real Christianity looks like, what a real Christian is, what a real church is, and so on and so forth. And John wrote 1 John among his reasons to be a, a, a reassurance, to be something that grounds them and gives them confidence in their faith. Let me ask you this question. When you die and to die is for the soul to be separated from the body, when your body is still, and it has no breath, it has no life, your soul will live on. When you die, do you have confidence 
about where your soul will go. When your soul departs from your body, do you have confidence about where your soul will reside afterwards? Either eternal life or eternal death, either eternal bliss and joy or eternal torment and destruction. Well, the scriptures in general, and 1 John in particular, give us a clear answer to this question and help us to have confidence and assurance in it. Let's read 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Jesus Christ says through his apostle John, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. For the outline of the sermon, we're going to have two main headings, but each of these main headings has three subpoints. And the first of these main headings is the unsure heart. The unsure heart. And we'll get straight into those subpoints. The first subpoint would be there is an unsure heart. There is an unsure heart. When we come to church, There's a kind of church culture. It's really just manners. It's not so much a church culture as it is manners. Hi, hello, how are you? Shake hands, brother, sister, so on and so forth. So nice to see you, etc. And we mean those things sincerely. But, But manners are often a surface. They're often not a facade in the sense of being false, but they're not the whole story. Manners of hello, how are you, nice to see you, good day, good Sabbath, <laughs> are just the way we talk and the way we interact to be nice to each other and kind and polite. But oftentimes a, a smile and a handshake don't fully communicate uh, a heart that may be quite doubtful or depressed or sad or questioning or unsure. There are unsure hearts in the church. There are unsure hearts among Christians, and we don't always know who this person is or that they are going through such and such a difficulty emotionally because we don't see such things, and we won't know such things unless they communicate them to us, but we need to acknowledge at the outset of this sermon that there is an unsure heart. There are Christians who who have questions. There are Christians who have doubts, and in particular, there are Christians who doubt their own salvation. Their hearts are not sure. Their hearts are unsure about their own salvation. And this sermon will help such a Christian, or it will help you to help such a Christian. Secondly, this heart knows the law of God. This heart knows the law of God. Why is it that there is an unsure heart? Why is it that there are Christians who have doubts about their own salvation? If I ask you what will happen to your soul when you die and you feel unsure about it, why is it that you feel unsure about it? 
Where does this uncertainty come from? It comes from the fact that you know by nature the law of God. It is written upon your heart. It is a knowledge that God has given to all mankind that there is a God and that he is a just and holy God and that there is a way that you ought to live in obedience to him. That's his law. And we know when we have broken that law, our consciences are sensitive to our sin, sin which is lawlessness. The heart of man knows the law of God. We may say, but, but they don't have, but man does not have the Ten Commandments written down for him. How can they know the law of God? Well, Paul answers this question for us. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 2. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, he says, When Gentiles who do not have the law, he means the written law, by nature do what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everyone who does not have the Old Testament scriptures, the law written down and summed up in Ten Commandments, they nevertheless have a knowledge of the law and a sensitive conscience They know when they have broken it. So all hearts know the law of God, and all hearts know that they have sinned. Now, is it not also true that men try to suppress this? They try to forget it. They try to numb their consciences. They try to avoid and forget and do anything they can to excuse themselves. Yes, but their abuse of the natural knowledge of the law of God does not delete or, or evade or remove the natural knowledge of the law of God. They're just trying very hard to, to silence it, to, to mute the law and make themselves deaf, deaf to it and insensitive and numb. But the heart that is sensitive, the conscience that is sensitive and, and that is unsure, why is it unsure? Because we know the law of God and we know that we have sinned. Which brings us to the third subpoint under this first heading. Thirdly, this heart, this unsure heart, self-condemns. This unsure heart self-condemns. Notice what John says in verse 20. He says, whenever our heart condemns us, he, he, he treats it as a thing that happens. It's a given. The heart of a Christian will at times, whenever, will at times condemn the Christian himself. Because we know the law of God, and because we know that we have sinned, therefore the conscience or the heart says, you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. You can't have eternal life, you sinner. You see the conscience condemning the the, the Christian, the heart condemning the, cringe, the, the Christian. And this, con- this conscience is a faculty that God has given to us that naturally applies a sensitivity to breaking God's law to us and, and makes us feel that pressure, makes us feel that guilt. We have done wrong. And because I have done wrong, the conscience accuses and condemns, you have not lived according to God's law. You are a sinner. But the conscience though given by God and good, is not 
infallible, which is a double negative to say the conscience is fallible. The conscience isn't always right. Jiminy Cricket is not always correct. So always let your conscience be your guide is not necessarily bad, but it's not great either because the conscience has to be informed by scripture. We often convince ourselves that wrong is right and right is wrong. Think about someone who steals and says, well, they don't really need that. Or they have, they have so much, they ought to give it to me. They, they try to rationalize, they try to excuse. They know it's wrong, but they're trying to think of ways to, to make it okay, to give themselves a, a pass on sin. So the conscience can even be uh, persuaded and can be moved so that that person feels, no, no, I haven't done anything wrong, even though they know they have, but they've convinced themselves that what they're doing is right or at least permissible. The conscience is not perfect. The conscience is part of who we are, and it is flawed and fallible, though it is good that we have a conscience. So the unsure heart of a Christian condemns the Christian because they know the law of God and they have broken the law of God. And at this point, it seems like an inescapable trap. It seems like a perfectly clear logic. I have sinned. Sin deserves condemnation. Therefore, I am condemned. And if this is a courtroom scenario and someone says, please bring out the evidence that this person has sinned, there's no shortage of evidence in each of our lives, both in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in the things we haven't done that we should have done, in our feelings, our inclinations, our desires. There's no shortage of bring out the evidence of this person's sin. We would say, okay, tome one, book one, chapter one, section one. It would go on forever and ever and ever if we started to list out our sins. So the heart condemns us. What's the problem? It shouldn't it? Shouldn't the conscience condemn? Shouldn't the heart condemn us for our sins? Should it? Should the conscience condemn the Christian for his sin? John says, no. John says, no. He says, there's a way out of this. John says, there's a path that avoids ending up in this trap. Well, what is that path, John? What is this, this way of escape? How do we get ourselves out of the cage of the conscience that condemns us for our sin? This brings us to our second main heading. Secondly, the reassured heart. The reassured heart. And I want to reread the passage. It's, it's brief. Verse 19 by this we shall know, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John tells us when the heart condemns, there's something we can do. By this we shall know. In this way, we can escape the condemnation and reassure our hearts. And when John uses the word that's translated reassure, he means persuade. You can reason with your heart. 
You can persuade your heart. We said you can persuade the conscience in a bad way, but you can also persuade the conscience in a good way. You can reason with your own heart and persuade it and satisfy your conscience so that it won't condemn you. Well, how, John? How? John says, look outside of yourself. He says, look to the greatness of God and the greatness of what God knows because God knows everything but your conscience does not. God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So what does God know that the heart does not naturally know? Well, let me give you the three subpoints of this heading all at once. Three subpoints of this heading all at once. Number 1, there is a savior. 2, this Savior kept the law of God. And three, this Savior removes all condemnation. There is a Savior. This Savior kept the law of God. This Savior removes all condemnation. John makes a contrast between what the heart knows and what God knows. The heart by nature knows the law of God. The heart by nature does not know the gospel. God knows all things. And so the heart at times forgets what God never forgets. The heart sometimes forgets there is a Savior. This Savior kept the law of God. And this Savior removes all condemnation. So how do we quiet the conscience? We need to supply a knowledge that is not known by nature. We need to supply a knowledge that is beyond our hearts and outside of our hearts. The law is written on the heart. It's already there. But there is something beyond the heart and outside of the heart, a supernatural, beyond nature knowledge. And you need to bring this and present it to the heart. You persuade the conscience by presenting it with a knowledge that is outside of itself and other than itself, namely the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. You tell your unsure heart, there is a Savior. And he is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one, innocent, without stain, blameless, spotless, perfect, obedient, obedient to the maximum, obedient from his very first moments to the very end and even to now. You tell him he has kept the law of God. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He, he endured all of the shame and sorrow, all of the pain, everything. He took it all obediently never sinning inwardly, never sinning outwardly. In no way did he ever deviate from the law of God and the holiness that God has commanded for man. So we tell the heart there is a Savior, and he is Jesus Christ, the obedient one. And we tell the heart that because of his death, because of his suffering in our place on the cross, because he shed his blood and gave his body and endured the curse for us, he has taken away our guilt. He has taken away the penalty of our sin. And he has taken away, therefore, the condemnation that belongs to our sin. 
His perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience is attributed to us or imputed to us because we believe in him. By faith, we are righteous in Jesus Christ with his righteousness. Our sin, our wickedness, our guilt is imputed to him who suffered in our place. And his perfect righteousness and obedience is imputed to us who, who hold him, who receive him by faith. We are justified, made righteous, declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And what does... Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 say, a verse that you all know. There is therefore now still some condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now a little bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, what does Paul say? What does the word of God say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your heart forgets that. Your heart forgets that. Your heart forgets the gospel. And you need to use this knowledge to counter and persuade your conscience and your heart to say, you cannot condemn me. You cannot condemn me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is greater than my heart. God knows all things. God knows his son, Jesus Christ. God knows what Jesus has done. God knows. My heart cannot condemn me. God chose me in Jesus Christ. He redeemed me in Jesus Christ. He holds me in Jesus Christ. He has given me his Holy Spirit to dwell in me, to reassure me of the presence of Christ with me. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am God's child. And all of this is true because God says it is true. In verse 20, the Apostle John makes a contrast uh, between two different kinds of knowledge, counter-knowledge and knowledge. When he says condemn, it means to present counter-knowledge, to present evidence against. But God is greater than our hearts, and we can reassure our hearts. By this we shall reassure, by this we shall present evidence in favor of in verses 19 and 20, so there's presenting evidence in favor of reassuring, and there's presenting evidence in contra against condemning. And John is saying that the evidence that we can present in favor of ourselves not being condemned is greater than the evidence that is presented in contra against us that we are condemned because the heart presents our sins and the gospel presents our Savior. Which one wins? <laughs> Who wins in that contest in the courtroom? The sinner or the blood of Christ that cleanses the sin? You see, the knowledge of the gospel triumphs over the self-condemnation of the heart that sees our sin and condemns us for it. But here's the difficulty, or one of the difficulties, is that what the heart presents is true. That's why it seems like an unavoidable trap, but, but the heart's not lying when it says, you have sinned in all of these ways. So why is it that we're not condemned? Well, it's because of Christ's sacrifice. It's because of what Jesus has done for us, but we could add more, more layers of protection to this. 
When you're cold, what do you do? You put on warm, warm clothes. If you're still not warm, what do you do? You put on more layers, layers and layers and layers and layers. Well, we can add layers and layers and layers of reassurance to our hearts. You've heard from me many times, and I hope you'll hear many times again, that God, because he loves us, strengthens his promises by putting them in covenants. He covenants with us for our sake to reassure our hearts. Remember in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how because God has no one greater to swear by, he swears by himself. And it says that among men, oaths are used for confirmation, to strengthen things. So if we make an agreement, um, I'll sell you double stuff Oreos for 50 cents, and you, you agree, that you might think, well, I don't know. But if we make an agreement, we sign it, we swear oaths, then it's, it, there's a formalization that guarantees the process so that our just word of mouth agreement is formalized and strengthened by a contract. So, I'll, <clears throat> so also, when God promises things to us, he doesn't need anything more to validate his word. <laughs> he doesn't need to do anything more than to simply promise. But for our sake, because we like to have reassurance, because we like to have confirmation and validation, therefore he swears oaths, and therefore he makes covenants. Hebrews also says there that in order to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise what he was going to do, he swore by himself to Abraham. Why did God swear the oath? To show more convincingly, to reassure the heart of Abraham that said, but how, do, how shall I know that my offspring shall be great and I, they shall inherit this land given that I have no heir? So also the heart says, how shall I know that there is no condemnation for me though I am in Christ Jesus? And we say, because God has not only promised it, because Jesus has not only accomplished it, but because God has covenanted it to us. We read in Jeremiah 31 or in Hebrews 8 and 10, God's covenant with us is this. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He has promised it. He has accomplished it. He has offered it to us, given it to us freely in covenant. What more does your conscience need? What more does your conscience want? At that point, the conscience that refuses this is refusing to look at the evidence. It's refusing to look at the gospel. But you can take God's promises to your conscience. You can take God's covenant to your conscience. You can take better your conscience to God and say, I, I will have confidence before him in the presence of the true, holy, holy, holy God. I will have confidence because I do not present myself. Rather, I present myself in Christ. I present God's promises to me in Christ. I present God's covenant to me in Christ. I come to claim from God what he has promised to me. God, you have promised me forgiveness in Christ. Give it to me, please, I ask, according to covenant. And what will God do? He will say, it is yours. I have given it to you. I have promised it to you. I have covenanted it to you. You say, God, I am a sinner, but I come as a sinner. Forgive my sins and refresh my conscience and give me confidence before you in Christ Jesus for you are greater than my heart and your son is greater than my heart and the gospel is greater than my heart. And he says, it is yours. In God's promises, his covenant, his greatness, his knowledge, we overcome the condemning conscience, that anti-knowledge 
and that knowledge. We hide in Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust in Christ. How shall I know that I am of the truth and reassure my heart when my heart condemns me by presenting to it that supernatural, that beyond nature knowledge of the gospel, which overpowers, it cleanses my sin and overpowers my doubts. And John says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And the heart will not condemn you if it can't condemn you. And it can't condemn you because of what Christ has done. So what will happen to you when you die? And do you have confidence about your eternal destiny? For those who believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him, they ought to have and may have confidence that their souls will not be required of them, but be received. Their souls will be received into God's presence, not required and sent to eternal prison, but rather received into the presence of God where there is light and life forevermore. My son, who again will remain nameless to protect his identity, he trusted in Duplo blocks, and that trust was soon proved to be ill-founded because the blocks are not greater than the creator, they're lesser. They don't have strength in and of themselves. But we're not putting our source, our, our confidence in a source that is lesser than us or that we have created or made. We are putting our confidence in the creator. Remember in, at the end of the book of Micah, it said, who is a God like you, forgiving sin and passing over iniquity and trespasses? Who is a God like you? There's none like you. God is greater than our hearts. And our source of confidence is outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us again and again that those who put their trust in him will not be put to shame. My son was put to shame by his Duplo, by his Duplo creation. In fact, we all laughed. It was just so ironically funny to insist on its integrity as it falls apart. And it, so it wasn't so much shame as it was humor. But other people trust in things, and then they're ashamed when it falls apart. But when we trust in Jesus Christ, we have the opposite. We find him every day better than we knew, every year better than we thought. And at the end of life, we say, he has been everything and more. And he will be yet more to me when my soul is perfected and eventually my body on that great day of resurrection. Let us conclude with three, three conclusions. Number one, <clears throat> faith and assurance are distinct. Faith and assurance are distinct. In some senses, I wanted to say this at the beginning of the sermon because it's kind of what the sermon's actually all about. Faith and assurance are not the same thing. There is faith, and then there is assurance of faith, certainty. And we need to keep this clearly in view because some people, by failing to make this distinction or not knowing this distinction, because they lack assurance... They think they lack faith. And so they think, I must not be saved because I lack assurance. When the fact is, they do have faith. They're just lacking an assurance of faith. 
Those things are distinct. Faith is to know the gospel, to, to assent that it is true, and to trust in Christ. I, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him. But assurance of faith is to have a personal certainty and assurance that I am in Christ. And to, to rejoice in that. Assurance of faith is an extra gift. It is an extra blessing that God gives to his children beyond faith. And not all have the same assurance of faith and not all have the same assurance in their own pers- life at different times. Your own assurance goes up and down, but saving faith does not change. Faith and assurance are distinct, so do not think just because you have doubts and questions or a lack of assurance that therefore you must not be saved. Because if I ask you, do you confess Jesus Christ and do you believe in him and you say yes, then you have faith and you have Christ and you have salvation. But if I say to you, do you feel assured and certain of that? And you say, I don't know. Then you're lacking assurance. But you're not lost. You're not bound for hell. Faith and assurance are distinct, and assurance is a special gift and joy that we can enjoy. There's faith, and there's the assurance of faith, and we must keep them distinct. And if your heart condemns you because you lack assurance, well, then you present all of this knowledge that gives you assurance. And it's not giving you faith that you had lost. It's giving you assurance of faith that you had lost. By presenting the merits of Jesus Christ, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the perfection and sinlessness and glory and greatness and promises and covenant and history and truth of Jesus Christ, all of these things as a Christian, you're not restoring your faith so much as you are restoring your assurance of faith. Because saving faith cannot be lost. But because you lost your assurance, you thought you lost your saving faith. It's a very helpful distinction to know. There is faith, and there is assurance of faith. Christians say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Christians say that. That's faith and assurance. Lord, I believe. That's faith. Help my unbelief. That's assurance. Number two. Love liberty. Love, liberty. In our Confession of Faith in chapter 21, it speaks of, the, of liberty of conscience. And one of the things that liberty of conscience means is that the conscience is freed from condemnation. That the, the conscience cannot condemn us. And so here we need to make a, an important distinction, another important distinction. The conscience rightly accuses, but it cannot condemn, but it wrongly condemns. The conscience rightly accuses, but wrongly condemns. Why is the conscience free from condemnation, even though we sin? Because the con- it's right and good that a Christian feels a sensitivity to sin and feels a remorse for sin and feels, I have done something wrong. I have sinned against my God. I am sad and I am sorry and I am going to change my ways, a repentance of the heart and a repentance indeed. It is good and right that the conscience accuses us. A Christian who is insensitive to sin is not a Christian. And so it is right and good that the conscience accuses and says you should not do that or you should not have done that. 
but the conscience is free, it has liberty not from accusations against sin, but the conscience is free from condemnation for sin. We are accused of it, we repent of it, we restore our assurance through the gospel, and therefore, though accused, we are not pronounced condemned. We're guilty, but not condemned because of Jesus Christ. And so we have to love that liberty. Love that liberty. Loving liberty does not mean, ha, I don't have to care about sin. I don't have to worry about it. But it does mean that we get to enjoy the freedom from the condemnation, the penalty of sin. Satan can't condemn me. Who's the judge? Who justifies? Who died? Paul goes through these questions at the end of Romans 8. Satan can't condemn me. The world can't condemn me. You call yourself a Christian and yet you this, that, and the other thing. My heart cannot condemn me. My heart can rightly accuse me, and I should have remorse for sin and repentance. But I'm free from condemnation. Liberty. I have to love this liberty and enjoy it. And if you think, well, no, I need to, I need to punish myself. I know that God's not going to, yes, God chastises me and disciplines me as a father, but, but I need to punish myself. Because I know God's not going to, but I've been so bad. Yes, repentance has remorse. Yes, God chastises his children and disciplines them, but he doesn't condemn them. And if so, he, if he does not, we ought not to do so. God, I know your way of doing things is not to condemn me, but I'm going to condemn myself. That would be to say, I don't love the liberty God's given to me. He's, he's let me out of this cage, but I'm going to shut it. I'm going to shut this cage. And you, no, I need to stay in here longer. I need to stay in this cage longer. Love the liberty. Enjoy it. If God has freed you from the cage of condemnation, enjoy that reassurance of heart. Enjoy that assurance of faith. Love that liberty. Walk freely. Enjoy the grace of God. You could be your own denier of, of the grace that God has given to you. You're the, you could be your own obstacle in enjoying assurance of faith. Even when someone explains this to you, there are still people who still want to shut the cage and know I need to be I need, I need more punishment. Who says who? Love, liberty. Thirdly and lastly, make use of means. Make use of means. John says in these verses, by this we shall know. In this way, there is a method, John says. It's a phrase he uses throughout the book. There is a way of going about things or thinking or doing, etc. There is a mean or a method that you can use to reassure your heart, to persuade and overcome the condemning heart and arrive at a true confidence and reassurance. And God has provided means for us to reassure our hearts and to live confidently before him. And the means that he has given to us are all word-centered. They're all centered on his word. So it is, what, what, means of, what means are we describing here? We're talking about what we normally call the means of grace. The red word, or the written word that we read. The preached word. And the visible word, the visible word would be baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. Also, prayers according to God's word and praises according to God's word. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms drawn from the scriptures and based on the scriptures. What happens 
when you use all of these means, the written word in all of these various forms, when, it, when that word reaches us through reading, through listening to sermons, and uh, through partaking of the Lord's Supper, and through singing and praying according to God's word, what happens? All of that beautiful counter-knowledge that overcomes the, or all that beautiful knowledge that overcomes the counter-knowledge, that's where it is. <laughs> that's where it is. So if you go back to the courtroom scene and the, the, the conscious is on one side accusing and you just have no defense on the other side because you have no means, you're, you're, you don't use the scriptures, you don't use the preached word, you don't use the sacraments, you don't use prayer and praise. If you neglect the means, you are neglecting every single defense or weapon that God has given to you, every, mean, every one of the means that God has supplied to reassure your heart and to help you. This is one of the reasons why it's so important to have a regular, consistent attendance in the public means of grace in the church. People think that pastors emphasize this because they just want people at their church. But the fact is, we don't want you to... Well, there is the fourth commandment to start, <laughs> honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, but, but pastors want you to not miss out on all of this wonderful defense and armor and reassurance that comes from the means of grace that God gives to us to help us. And by absenting ourselves from the worship of God, the public means, as well as private duties of, of prayer and engaging in God's word, we make ourselves defenseless so that the heart that forgets these things what does it not forget? Our sin. It knows God's law. It knows our sin always. It doesn't forget those things, but it forgets these means and these promises that God's given to us, so we must make use of them. I'm struggling with assurance. Are you using the means that God has ordained to reinforce and to strengthen your assurance? Well, no. Have you been attending faithfully the public means of grace? Are you constant, not meaning every second, but regular in prayer and praise to God throughout the week and meditating on his word and reading it, well, not really, then I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that you lack assurance when the heart is going to have splotchy knowledge about the gospel, but it will have a very good knowledge of the law of God and your sins against it. But the scriptures again and again, what do they present to us? When we enjoy the Lord's Supper this afternoon, what does it say to us? It says, this is my body. This is my blood for you. For you. It's that for you part that becomes assurance of faith for us. Forgiveness of sins for me. God's covenant with me to remember my sins no more. But if we neglect the means, then we neglect our own assurance and we will lose it. You cannot lose saving faith, but you can lose your assurance and live in great doubt and peril and worry and anxiety unnecessarily. Brothers and sisters, Satan wants us to neglect. Satan wants us to stay away because this is so powerful, because the covenant of God, because his promises, his greatness, what God always knows and never forgets, it's so powerful to overpower the conscience, the heart, and to reassure us and give us confidence before him. Satan doesn't want you to live with that confidence. He doesn't want you to live with that assurance. He wants Christians to suffer because this is the only place he has access to us. This is our hell for now. And he says, and while you're here, I'm going to do the most I can to destroy you 
and to take away your assurance. And we say, well, there's therefore now no condemnation for me. And God's covenant is to remember my sins no more. He can't possibly overcome that. Nor can my heart, nor can the world. We must make use of means, brothers and sisters. It is by this we shall know. By this we shall know and reassure our hearts before him. And brothers and sisters, what a beautiful, beautiful truth that we find in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence before God in life and confidence before God in death. What more could we want? He's given us everything. Praise be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy and perfect, just and righteous and true, all-knowing, we come before you as your people who are justified, forgiven and declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And we confess that we have been negligent in making use of the means that you have provided to build us up and to reassure us of your love for us and our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we ask you to forgive us for that. And we ask you to give us a greater appreciation and love for the regular and ordinary means of grace that you have supplied to us, knowing that it is in these things and by this that we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before you. Help us to see past the the twinkling lights and sparkles and glitter of the world that seems so attractive and powerful. Help us to see past the lies of Satan and the lies of our hearts that forget things. Help us to rest in Jesus Christ and to enjoy and love that liberty that he has purchased for us and given to us. Help us to live in a reassured and confident way. We ask you to strengthen us and we ask that this sermon that your word now would be would be a crutch and would be a medicine and would be a reinforcement and a realignment for all of your children here to live not just with faith but with assurance of faith oh lord the lifter of our heads we pray that you would indeed guide us and lead us and that we would rest in following you and enjoying all that you have given to us we pray this in jesus name amen